Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. And 2022. It's a new year. What, looking back, can we look forward to in this coming year? Well, the year starts strong with exhibitions. Franz Haas, the male portrait exhibition, is at the Wallace Collection until the 30th of January. Haas is the Dutch Golden Age painter who should be mentioned in the same breath as Vermeer and Rembrandt. And this is a beautifully intimate exhibition of his work. I've visited and the exhibition features on the podcast this January. We thought long and hard about should we just focus on the male portraits? And in the end, we decided to do just that. We thought we don't have a massive exhibition space, so we have to work with the space that we have. We can put on very focused exhibitions that make an effective point. And we decided to focus on the male portraits because our own picture is a male portrait. So surround him with pictures like it, all half length like him or three quarter length independent portraits. There are group portraits, portraits of women. But I think if we started expanding it, it would have been difficult to know where to stop. And so we just said, okay, keep it clean, keep it focused to really put our laughing cavalier in context. Meanwhile, over at the British Library in London, Elizabeth and Mary, royal cousins, rival queens, is open until the 20th of February. And it's a must-see. I visited just before the new year to speak to its curator, Dr. Andrea Clark, And that podcast will also go out this month. What we try to do is tell their story, the story of two powerful women bound together by their chair Tudor ancestry and their experience as fellow sovereign queens, but divided by their opposing Protestant and Catholic faiths and ultimately their rivalry for the English and Irish thrones. And we try to tell their story in their own words. So we have the largest collection of Mary and Elizabeth's autograph letters here at the British Library. And so they lie at the very heart of the exhibition. And that's really important because even though they've been brought together on stage and screen, they never actually met in real life. So they conducted their relationship very much at a distance, much of it through letters and speeches. And so we put those items at the very heart of the exhibition. We have tried to strip away all of the layers of interpretation that have been imposed on them over the centuries. We really want their voices, their words to shine through. And finally, also in London, Dürer's exhibitions, Travels of a Renaissance Artist, 
is at the National Gallery until the 27th of February. It's an enormous and wonderful exhibition, and I spoke to its curator, Dr Susan Foister, in December. I think it's hard not to pay attention to Dürer when you have the experience of looking very closely at one of his prints or his paintings, because the way that he represents nature or the human figure is so very extraordinary. The effects he creates of atmosphere, of detail, of individual likeness. In some ways, it always seems very modern, the way that he observes constantly. But coming up, at the Holborn Museum in Bath from the 28th of January through to the 8th of May 2022, there's a new exhibition called The Tudors, Passion, Power and Politics, which features 25 famous Tudor portraits, so the Darnley and Amada portraits of Elizabeth, people like Jane Seymour, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, the Thomases, Cramer, Moore and Cromwell, and William Sissel among them. And in late May until the 29th of August, it moves to the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. So if you're anywhere near Bath or Liverpool, that looks like a must-see this year. I hope to get to see it myself and I will report back. And then there's TV. I'm excited about a new series on stars called The Serpent Queen, which is about Catherine de' Medici. It's based on Leonie Frieda's book, Catherine de' Medici, Renaissance Queen of France, and Samantha Morton plays the titular role. It's supposed to be out in 2022, so let's keep an eye out for that. I spoke to Dr Estelle Perang back in July about Catherine. She was a French queen, but she was also from Italy. She was half Italian, half French. From her mother, she was French, and from her father, she was Italian. And she's obviously from the famous family, the Medici. And she was from Florence, and she was not meant to be queen. I think that's why it's so extraordinary about her. And she married Henry II, where he was Henry, Duke of Orléans. In 1533, a great year with the birth of Elizabeth and the marriage of Catherine de' Medici. And then she became Dauphine of France and then she became Queen Consort of France. And then even after that, her husband died and she became a sort of Queen Regent and then she became the Queen Mother of France. So she's a very important 16th century French figure. She has an extreme dark legend around her brain and her life is full of drama and scandal, but also you learn so much from her. And there's also The Lost King, made by Pathé and BBC Film, starring Sally Hawkins, Steve Coogan and Harry Lloyd, which tells the story of how what the blurb calls one ordinary woman, Philippa Langley, discovered the remains of King Richard III under a Leicestershire car park. It's billed as the life-affirming true story of a woman who refused to be ignored and who took on the country's most eminent historians, forcing them to think again about one of the most infamous kings in England's history. Well, there's much that could be said about that, but let's see what that looks like. But above all, it's a big year for anniversaries. I've always conceived of the time span of this podcast being from 1492 to 1692, which means that in 2022, we have some significant anniversaries coming up. And by golly, once one starts looking, it's amazing what you can find. And although it may not seem like this, this is a curated list. There are many more I could have mentioned. And because this is the things that interest me, it's also practically a schedule for podcasts over the coming year. So this is a look forward to the kind of thing we'll be talking about in the year to come. I'm going to work back in time. 
And first up, I'm going to start with a very recent anniversary. 40 years ago, in October 1982, the Mary Rose was raised from the seabed. Now, back in July 1545, and in retaliation for the English capture of Boulogne the previous year, the French fleet sailed into the Solent, that's the strait between the Isle of Wight and mainland England, with 324 ships. It was the single greatest foreign threat of Henry VIII's reign, and it was during this encounter between the French and the English fleet that Henry VIII's warship, the Mary Rose, sank on the 19th of July, 1545, after 34 years of active service. And then, for 437 years, despite attempts to raise her guns or to capture things from her, the Mary Rose lay on the seabed. And the amazing thing is that the silt of the Solent preserved the timbers of her starboard side. She was rediscovered in the 19th century and in 1982 was heroically raised from the sea. And today, this original Tudor ship is on display in a state-of-the-art museum in Portsmouth. This is the year to get to see her. And not only does she survive, but along with her survive the remains of 179 members of the crew who drowned and over 19,000 objects, giving us a unique insight into the lives of ordinary Tudors. So this year we'll focus on the Mary Rose in a podcast special that talks all about her sinking and her raising. And if you can only remember seeing her when she was being sprayed down, she's no longer being sprayed, you can see her without any glass between you. And you can see all her objects laid out where they would have been on the ship itself. But let us now get back to the 17th century and work back through time. 2022 marks 330 years since the Salem witch trials of 1692. Now, regular listeners will know that the historical persecution of witchcraft fascinates me. And the Salem case is an especially interesting example of mass hysteria. It's actually the biggest alleged witch conspiracy in New England history. The crisis lasted from January 1692 through to mid-1693, so 18 months, during which time at least 70 people seemed to be afflicted by spectral attacks. That is, the spirits of the witches attacked those who were accusing them, producing fits and strange behaviour. And this is interesting in itself because this kind of spectral evidence was often not used as evidence elsewhere. 169 people, perhaps as a consequence, were accused of witchcraft. 113 were imprisoned and 25 people died. Five in prison, awaiting trial. 19 were hanged. One was pressed to death. And there's so much more that we could say about that. So let's look into that this year. It's also the 330th anniversary of another grisly event, the Glencoe Massacre, in which government troops shot, bayoneted and burned 40 Highlanders on the 13th of February 1692. It was a political atrocity to eradicate the MacDonald clan and Jacobite supporters, that is, those who wanted to restore James VII as King of Scots after the Scottish Parliament had formally declared William and Mary to be king and queen. Now, five years earlier than that, in 1687, 
something rather major happened. 2022 marks 335 years since Isaac Newton's Principia was published in England. Newton's Principia, or more properly, his Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica, or Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, was published on the 5th of July 1687, and it revolutionised physics. This is the book that outlined the laws of motion and gravitation. While 340 years ago, this year, in 1682, on the 18th of June, the English Quaker William Penn founded Philadelphia. On the 26th of August, Edmund Haley first observed the comet that is named after him. And in October 1682, Louis XIV established his court at the fabulous Versailles. That palace of 700 rooms, 67 staircases, 352 chimneys, 2,153 windows, 6,300 paintings, 2,100 sculptures and statues, 15,000 engravings, 5,000 decorative art objects and furnishings, and intended to house a court of 6,000 people. It's also a big anniversary of something that happened 350 years ago. A charter was given to the Royal African Company of England. A charter had originally been issued in 1660 to the Company of Royal Adventurers Trading into Africa, giving it a monopoly over English trade on the west coast of Africa. This charter was expanded in later years to include trade in African slaves. But this original company fell heavily into debt, and it was succeeded on the 24th of September 1672 by the Royal African Company, which had a new charter, a new name, and a broader remit. It was permitted to set up forts and factories, warehouses, in the terminology of the time, to maintain troops and to exercise martial law in order to trade in gold and silver and African slaves. In the 1680s, the company was transporting about 5,000 enslaved peoples a year, mostly to the Caribbean. It's estimated that by the end of the 17th century, Britain had enslaved and transported over 332,000 Africans across the Atlantic, of whom an estimated 78,000 had died en route. Professor William Pettigrew notes that the company shipped more enslaved African women, men and children to the Americas than any other single institution during the entire period of the transatlantic slave trade. And investors knew what was going on. They knew that they could profit by it. The Royal African Company Charter, preserved at the National Archives, states the trade of the said regions, countries and places is of great advantage to our subjects of this kingdom. In practice, of course, the English involvement with the slave trade had started well before 1672. In fact, it started some 110 years earlier. Another anniversary, therefore, in 2022 is that of 1562, when Captain John Hawkins became the first known Englishman to include enslaved Africans in his cargo. He had gone to the Guinea coast with the intention of capturing people. His letter to Elizabeth I said, and I apologise in advance for the historic language, that he would load Negroes in Genoa, meaning Guinea, and sell them in the West Indies in truck of gold, 
pearls and emeralds, whereof I doubt not but to bring home great abundance to the condemnation of your highness, i.e. the pleasure of your highness. So he was promising the queen gold, as you see, pearls and emeralds from the enterprise. The queen approved the journey and Hawkins captured at least 300 Africans and made the voyage across the Atlantic to the West Indies, where he arrived at the port of Monte Cristi, now in the Dominican Republic, and, as he writes in one of his letters, did deposit 125 slaves at 100 ducats each. His reward was crown sponsorship. The Queen lent him her own vessel in 1564 and gave him a knighthood and a grant of his own coat of arms in 1568. And the coat of arms includes a bound slave. The consequence of the work that Hawkins begun and the Royal African Company a century or so later continued on that industrial scale was that, by conservative estimates, some 12 million Africans were enslaved and transported across the Atlantic in the centuries that followed. So 2022 is going to be an important year to consider that and its legacy. Let's move on to a happier anniversary of the granting of a charter by Charles II. 360 years ago this year, a charter was given to the Royal Society in London. A group of natural philosophers had been meeting for many years at various locations, including Gresham College in London. And in November 1660, a committee of 12 scholars had announced the formation of a college for the promoting of physico-mathematical experimental learning, or science as we now call it, and the Royal Charter was signed on the 15th of July 1662. The Royal Society adopted the motto of nullius in werba, or take nobody's word for it, which I think we could probably keep as our motto today. So rather than taking anything on the authority of the person who said it, all facts should be verified and proven experimentally. The story of the Royal Society is really the story of modern science. It was the Royal Society who published Newton's Principia 25 years later. 2022 marks 370 years since the opening of the first coffee house in London, Pasqua Rose's shop in St Michael's Alley, Cornhill, in 1652. Early in the 17th century, it's kind of restricted to a sort of elite, courtly, scientific circles. Dr Matt Green. But then... In the year 1652, England's first coffee house opens. And that's where an extraordinary gentleman called Pasqua Rosé, who was an Orthodox Greek, he was the servant, agent, broker, many more things to a British Levant merchant called Daniel Edwards. Daniel Edwards was posted to Smyrna in Turkey. And quite simply, he became addicted to coffee. Pasqua, it was said, served the best coffee in the whole of the Ottoman Empire. He drank it <laughs> black as hell, strong as death, sweet as love. Business eventually recalled this merchant from his sun-kissed Turkish paradise back to the cold, drizzly city of London. And he simply couldn't imagine his life without the coffee, nor his trusted servant. So they begin to concoct it just for his friends in his townhouse in Walbrook. But being a sort of moneyed man, he's like, well, this is ripe for rather a handsome profit. So he goes out into the amazing warrens around St. Michael's Church, just in the heart of the old city. And they established the first coffee house, or rather coffee shack. And people flocked to it in prodigious numbers to try out what was 
most commonly known, not really as coffee, it was called the Bitter Mohammedan Gruel, the Soot-Coloured Ninny Broth, the Hell-Burnt Nasty Liquor, or simply Politician's Porridge. So that's what you would go to pour down your gullet. Londoners probably needed a shot of caffeine because 1652 also marked the start of a series of oft-forgotten wars, those between the English and the Dutch, which were a response to an act of Parliament in 1651 that was intended to prevent Dutch involvement in the English sea trade. War was declared on the 28th of June in England, the 8th of July in Europe, and why that was relates to another anniversary that will be coming across soon. But this year marks a couple of important anniversaries to do with the significant role played by the Dutch in international trade in the 17th century. 375 years ago this year, in 1647, a ship from the Netherlands changed the history of South Africa. Table Bay, a natural bay near what is now Cape Town, had long been one of a number of stopping points for European ships to pick up drinking water. In March 1647, a ship called the New Harlem foundered in the shallow waters off Table Bay. No one died, and half the crew were taken back to the Netherlands by other ships in the fleet. But 62 men remained to look after their precious cargo of spices textiles and porcelain to await a larger ship which would come and pick them up a year later. If they hadn't stayed, says Gerald Gruenord of the University of Johannesburg's Department of History, the history of colonial South Africa could have turned out very differently. The crew of the New Harlem established a camp that they called Zanderbush or Sandcastle and they bartered for livestock with the indigenous cocoa people. One of the ship's junior merchants, Lindert Jantz, kept a journal. So he says things like, On Saturday, 15th of June, in 1647, you remember, the crew shot a rhinoceros which had been fighting with an elephant near our fortification. The meat is very short-grained and tastes good, which serves us very well in this time of shortage. And a day later, our skiff returned from the Robben Island with 200 birds, mostly penguins, as well as 800 eggs. And it was the crew's experience at Zanderbirch that made it clear that the Cape was a potentially rich site for settlement with access to fertile land, abundant fish, fresh water and timber. And it's largely because of this that five years later, when a man called Jan van Riembeck was told to lead a Dutch settlement at the tip of Africa, he landed in Table Bay. Unfortunately, unlike the previous crew, His attitude to the indigenous people was negative from the start, and this distrust shaped the course of South African history. Jan van Riembeek was high up in the Dutch East India Company, or the VOC, and coincidentally, 2022 also marks 420 years since the formation of the Dutch East India Company, or VOC, on the 20th of March, 1602 some 45 years before Riembeck was sent to Table Bay. Now, like the English East India Company, the VOC was a company established to trade with Mughal India, with Southeast Asia, and with the Spice Islands in spices, textiles, later coffee. But like the English East India Company, it didn't just trade. Its business involved shipbuilding, diplomacy, warehousing, investing, settlement. It's less like a corporation and more like an empire with quasi-governmental legal powers. 
The VOC could establish colonies, wage war, enforce its own judicial system, mint its own coinage and negotiate treaties. And for 200 years, it dominated European trade in Asia and around the world, as the settlement in South Africa demonstrates. So we'll be thinking about the VOC this year for certain. 2022 marks 380 years since the outbreak of the British Civil War. I've never known why people are not more excited about the Civil War. Think about how extraordinary it was. On the 22nd of August, 1642, the King of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland declared war on Parliament. Now, arguably, the war had actually begun earlier in Scotland with the Bishops' War of 1639-40 and in Ireland with the Ulster Rebellion of 1641. But 1642 is an important date to mark. And of course, the ultimate consequence of the war between the royalists and parliamentarians, or the cavaliers and roundheads as they were contemptuously known, was the beheading of that king. The first full-scale battle of the war at Edge Hill was the first time that Englishmen had fought their fellow countrymen since the Wars of the Roses 200 years earlier. And something like one in every eight adult males fought in the wars, and an estimated 200,000 people were killed, putting it proportionate to population on a par with the losses of the First World War. Here's Professor Ronald Hutton talking about the Civil War back on the podcast in November. This, after all, is a civil war, and you have generals on both sides who have friends on the opposite sides, and who speak with wonderful one-liners like this war without an enemy. Well, Cromwell's absolutely certain that it's a war with an enemy and the enemy of Satan, and his military and political enemies are the devil's followers. It's as simple as that. That's why I call him a Puritan jihadi, without any sense of shame or of misappropriation of language. In his very first effective leadership of cavalry, a skirmish in Lincolnshire, he routes and chases some royalist horsemen and exults afterwards in a letter about how they did execution on them for miles. In other words, killing as many as they could. Even more remarkable is the next little local action, also in Lincolnshire, in which he routes another group of local cavalier horsemen. And the royalist commander, who's an aristocrat, is knocked from his horse onto the ground. Now, this is a really valuable captive. He is a noble. He can be exchanged for a prisoner taken from your side. And there's real credit in bringing him back like a prize from a hunt. They don't even think about it. Cromwell's second in command runs the stricken man through in Cromwell's exulting language under the short ribs, which is a steal from the Old Testament. Stabbing people under the fifth rib is what you do to Midianites, Amalekites, Ammonites, and all the other ites who infest the Old Testament as enemies of the people of God. And it goes on like that. In the same year, 1642, the Dutch explorer Abel Tasman found Van Diemen's Land, as he called it, now Tasmania, and caught sight of New Zealand, making him and his crew the first Europeans to do so. The anniversaries of Europeans discovering other parts of the world and later deciding to colonise them will keep coming. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. 
Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts, it's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. also marks 390 years since the publication on the 22nd of February 1632 of Galileo's Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. The two world systems in question were the traditional Ptolemaic system, in which the sun and everything else in the universe orbited the earth, and the Copernican system, in which the earth and other planets orbited the sun. So Galileo was manifestly not the first person to publish on this. The heliocentric model proposed by Nicholas Copernicus had been published in 1543, albeit posthumously. And Galileo had also sought permission from the Inquisition to publish, but nevertheless, he was found to be vehemently suspected of heresy on the basis of his dialogue. And the book was placed on the Catholic Church's list of prohibited books and not removed from that until 1835. Across the world, and five years earlier, we have another important anniversary to mark. It has been 395 years since the 17th and last emperor of the Chinese Ming dynasty, Chongzhen, came to the throne. Now, I for one need to know a lot more about the Ming dynasty and about Chongzhen, and I hope to find someone to introduce me to him this year. Meanwhile, back in Europe, 400 years ago this year, admittedly 
Not the most exciting quadricentennial anniversary, but stay with me. On the 5th of September, 1622, Armand Jean Duplessis, Duc de Richelieu, was appointed cardinal under the French king Louis XIII. If your only encounter with Richelieu is the Three Musketeers, then the fascinating history of this wildly egotistical, brutal man who became the most powerful man in France after the king is certainly worth discovering. It was Richelieu, also known as L'Eminence Rouge, the Red Eminence, who centralised the French state by building up a spy network, banning public political discussion and brutally repressing his enemies. He once said, if you give me six lines written by the hand of the most honest of men, I will find something in them which will hang them. Boy, did he hang people. And his authoritarianism set the scene for Louis XIV's later absolutism. But Richelieu was also a great patron of the arts. He founded the Académie Française and he's still greatly honoured in France. Now, back in time to 1617. It is 410 years since the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan married Mumtaz Mahal. When she died, Shah Jahan commissioned in her memory the Taj Mahal, the incredible white marble jewel inlaid domed mausoleum in Agra that normally attracts seven or eight million visitors a year. It's certainly the most incredible building I've ever visited. It's also 410 years since the Pendle Witch Trials. The Pendle Witch Trials of 1612 are some of the most famous witch trials in history because they're some of the best recorded. And the reason is because the clerk of the court, Thomas Potts, published an official account of the proceedings. 20 people were arrested on accusations of witchcraft, of whom 12 continued towards prosecution. 10 were tried at the Lancaster Assizes, one in York, and one died in the grim underground prison room beneath Lancaster Castle, awaiting trial. That one was Elizabeth Southerns, also known as Old Demdike. She was 80 years old, and she was not only believed to be a witch by others, but she herself was convinced of her witchery. She tried to take revenge on someone who had wronged her by using a poppet. The speediest way, she's recorded as saying, to take a man's life by witchcraft is to make a picture of him, like unto the shape of the person whom they mean to kill, prick it with a thorn or pin, burn the clay figure, and thereupon by that means the body shall die. She escaped hanging, but ten others, mostly women, were found guilty at trial of witchcraft under the 1604 Witchcraft Act and were hanged on Gallows Hill in Lancaster in August 1612. Five years earlier, on the 14th of May 1607, or 415 years ago this year, the English established the first permanent English settlement in America, at Jamestown. Now, crucially, you'll notice the word permanent in there, for which I could have substituted successful, because there had been various attempts by the English to establish colonies in North America, like the 1585 settlement at Roanoke Island, which had failed. It was only in 1607 that the Virginia Company of London funded the establishment of Jamestown, led by Captain John Smith, You've probably heard of him because the English settlers were attacked by the indigenous Paspahe tribe and Smith was saved by Chief Powhatan's daughter, Pocahontas, famously popularised by the Disney film. The Jamestown settlement itself was only just successful. Food was very short and the men were divided. Sir Thomas Gates, a new governor, was sent but was delayed by shipwreck 
And by the winter of 1608, only a quarter of Jamestown was still alive. And that's even before we get to what's called the starving time of 1609 to 10. But leaving it behind, back we go, this time all the way back to 1582, and a change in time itself. Or at least its measurement. On Thursday the 4th of October 1582, people in Spain went to sleep and they woke up on Friday the 15th of October. And this wasn't the result of a nationwide Jerez-induced coma. In France, the 10th to the 19th of December 1582 went missing. In Flanders, the date skipped from the 21st of December 1582 to the 1st of January 1583. Christmas went missing that year. And this is because 440 years ago this year, Pope Gregory XIII announced the new Gregorian calendar, and Catholic Europe shifted from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, which meant skipping 10 days. Though, as you can see, not all the same 10 days. The Julian calendar was 365 days and 6 hours long, which meant that it was 11 minutes too long a year. Every 134 years, the calendar gained a day, so by the end of the 16th century, the calendar was 12 days out. So Pope Gregory XIII had established a commission to investigate the problem, led by Christopher Clavius, who recommended introducing leap years to occur every four years, except in centennial years, and dropping 10 days from the existing date in what became known as the Gregorian calendar. So France, Spain, Italy, Portugal, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Flanders, Poland and the Pontifical States did that and the Catholic part of Germany, Austria, the Czech and Slovak territories followed suit in 1590. As a Protestant country, England didn't adopt it immediately so the English system was 10 days adrift from Europe which is why the war between the Netherlands and England started on different days in 1652. Other Protestant countries held out too, so from 1582 onwards, Protestants and Catholics were divided by time. They existed, if you will, on different days. It was only finally in 1752 that Britain and its colonies, including America, moved from the 2nd of September to the 14th of September and caught up with the rest of Europe. Dial back another 10 years and we get to the 24th of August, 1572. This year marks 450 years since the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France. This is the awful moment when thousands of Protestant Huguenots were massacred in Paris and across France during the French Wars of Religion. Dr. Sophie Nichols joined me on the podcast in October to talk about it. In the middle of the night, the city gates are locked, the boats on the Seine are chained up, weapons are distributed to the militia and to any citizen who can bear arms, and the artillery is made ready. In the early hours of the morning, the Duke de Guise takes his Swiss guard to Coligny's lodgings. They break in and they head for the Admiral's room to finish the job. And Coligny is stabbed to death by his attackers. His body is then thrown out of the window where the Duke of Guise is waiting so that Guise can see that the deed has definitely been done. And once he's established that it is indeed Coligny, they cut the Admiral's head off the body and a mob actually made up largely of children drags the body away, castrating it and then attaching it to horses, taking it through the streets of Paris and eventually stringing it up back to Montfaucon, which is where traitors to the crown are executed. The mayhem that happens at the Coligny resident is heard in the neighbourhood 
and there's an alarm sounded somewhere between three and four in the morning. The problem is that the people standing near the colony house hear, well, they say they hear, geese shouting, the king has commanded it is the will of the king. And once these warning bells are rung, this is taken as an order to undertake a massacre of Protestants in the city and to cleanse it once and for all of heresy. Let's get back another 25 years, back to a major change of personnel. 475 years ago this year, in 1547, Ivan the Terrible crowned himself as first Tsar of Russia. King Henry VIII died on the 28th of January and Edward VI became the new boy king of England and Francois I died on the 31st of March and Henri II became king of France. So that's major regime change. And you can be sure we'll be talking some more about what that all meant this year. There's another major figure we need to mark this year. This year is all about Mary, Queen of Scots. It is not only 480 years since the birth of Mary Stuart on the 8th of December 1542. She was also declared Queen of Scots just six days later. It's also 455 years since she was imprisoned in Loch Leven Castle and 435 years since her death at Fotheringhay Castle on the 8th of February 1587. And Mary Queen of Scots isn't the only queen whose death we should mark this year. 1542 also was the year of the attainder and execution of Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, for treason. She was beheaded on the 13th of February, 1542. The interrogation initially started because a former family servant told her brother about Catherine and Francis Durham. He went to Archbishop Cranmer, who told the king. So initially, it's an investigation into... Was she pre-contracted and ineligible to be queen? And as she's panicking about the Francis Durham thing, she throws Thomas Culpepper's name into the conversation and says Francis was jealous of him, but there's no reason because obviously nothing was going on. At which point the Archbishop wonders why you would bring up Thomas Culpepper if he was irrelevant. And that's when they search his room and find the love letters. So in many ways, Cranmer allowing her to reach that fever pitch of fear and she does seem to have been really terrified allowing her to reach that stage was almost allowing her to write her own death warrant it's an unsavory impression created by the archbishop in his own account of the interrogations and we have two big anniversaries from the 1530s it is 485 years since the first complete bible in english the matthew bible was published in October 1537, with translations by William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale. Only seven years earlier, it had been illegal to own a copy of William Tyndale's translation of the New Testament. And only one year earlier, in October 1536, Tyndale had, because of his translation, been found guilty of heresy and executed by strangling and burning at the stake. According to John Fox's Acts and Monuments, or his Book of Martyrs, Tyndale's final words, spoken in a loud voice at the stake, were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. The other major anniversary from the 1530s is from November 1532, because this year marks 
490 years since the Spanish explorer Francisco Pizarro captured the Inca leader Atahualpa and conquered the Inca Empire in Peru, killing thousands of Incas along the way. Atahualpa was captured in an ambush, and the element of surprise seems to have been key here, as was the fact that the Incas were divided following the death of the powerful emperor Huanaca Capac. This year is a good year to learn more about the Incas and their extraordinary empire, and how it ended. And this year is a really major anniversary, both in years and in significance. 2022 marks 500 years since the first recorded circumnavigation of the globe. This monumental feat was instigated and organised by the Portuguese-born Fernando de Magellas, anglicised as Ferdinand Magellan. His is a contested and complicated legacy. At the time, his proposed mission was considered suicidal. Most people thought it was probably impossible to sail around the entire globe. You know, here be dragons. Think about the weather. It was literally sailing into the unknown. The expedition departed on the 20th of September 1519. It set off from Spain with five ships, searching for a western route to the Moluccas or the Spice Islands. It headed west across the Atlantic and then down the coast of South America. And between February and August 1520, the ships wintered in what is modern-day Argentina. And here the crews mutinied. They were largely a Spanish crew who resented having a Portuguese commander. One ship was wrecked and another abandoned the mission and returned to Spain. But somehow Magellan managed to regain control, largely, I suppose, through his harsh reprisals on the mutineers. Discovering a rumoured strait, now known as the Strait of Magellan, in late November, the crew became the first Europeans to reach the Pacific Ocean. And what an ocean it must have seemed. Both starvation and scurvy devastated the crew. It was nearly another 100 days before they made landfall again on the 6th of March 1521 at Guyem. But their response does not seem to have been one of great gratitude. Here they killed the indigenous people and they burned their homes in response to the theft of a small boat. From there, they travelled on for a month to Mactan in the Philippines, where on the 27th of April, Magellan was killed in battle with the locals. But the remaining party of two ships, led now by Juan Sebastian Elcano, made it to the Moluccas, and from there across the Indian Ocean and round the Cape of Good Hope, and one ship eventually limped all the way home. And after three years, 60,000 miles, and the death of 80% of the crew, it arrived back in Spain on the 6th of September, 1522. So that's our big quincentennial anniversary, 500-year anniversary this year, of Magellan's circumnavigation. But I think this year we're going to be thinking a lot about what we should make of that. 500 years ago also marks something else. A young girl from a rising family made her debut at the English court, playing the part of perseverance or perseverance in the Chateau Vert pageant on the 4th of March, 1522. Her family name was Berlin, and she was called Anne. The rest, as they say, is history. It is also this year the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther's 
95 theses, which he maybe nailed to the door of that church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October in 1517. What he certainly did do was send the thesis to Albrecht von Brandenburg, the Archbishop of Mainz. And it's five years now after his quincentenary, which feels like a real moment to reflect on the commemorations. In fact, this has already begun, as I learned from talking to Lyndall Roper about her new book, Living I Was Your Plague. He really wants to model himself on St Paul, with whom he identifies so much and whose writings he keeps turning to again and again and again. And I think he wants to present himself as having a conversion experience and suddenly the doors being thrown open, as he puts it, and entering the gates of paradise. It's a wonderful passage. But when you try and think, well, when was this happening? If you look at the order that he's describing his life, it's in the wrong place (laughs) because it happens, as he describes it, in 1519. So it's two years after the 95 Theses, well, that can't be right. And I think there's a way in which, well, we all do it, don't we? We go back to a turning point, to imagining that our lives change dramatically in a different direction in a single moment. But for Luther too, there wasn't a single moment and there wasn't a sudden conversion. The way that he imagines it, He does it in terms of St. Paul and St. Paul's experience of becoming not Saul, but Paul and changing your name, interestingly enough, and a road to Damascus experience. I think actually Luther's theology develops in leaps and bounds after 1517, but it never loses its Augustinianism. He really is formed as an Augustinian monk when he dedicates himself to St. Anne and goes into the monastery in Erfurt Many of the ideas and the fundamental tension that he has between this feeling of unfeshtung or tribulation, that's something that he has all his life right until the very end. And actually, that's one of the things why I find him so compelling and interesting, because he's not someone who then has a sort of bland religion where there's no doubt, where there's no emotion, where there's no development or change. He's someone who is in struggle with God and with his own sense of sinfulness and with his own fear about not being saved and his inability to trust totally in God's grace. Okay, we're almost there. Let me tell you a whole bunch of anniversaries real quickly before we get to our last stop. 510 years ago, Michelangelo's paintings on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican were first exhibited. 515 years ago, Martin Waldseemuller first used the name America on his world map. 520 years ago, Ishmael I, founder of the Safavid dynasty, was crowned Shah of Persia, 1502. 525 years ago, John Cabot, Giovanni Cabotto departed Bristol searching for new lands. The Pope excommunicated Girolamo Savonarola, and Perkin Warbeck was acclaimed Richard IV on Bodmin Moor, one of the pretenders to Henry VII's throne. But our final big anniversary klaxon, and the last thing to say, is that 2022 marks 530 years since 1492, and all that means. The conquest of Granada. 
Mohammed XII, the last emir of Granada, surrendered his city to Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabel of Castile, ending centuries of Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula. Ferdinand and Isabel issued the Alhambra Decree, expelling Jews from Spain, and, funded by Ferdinand and Isabel, the Italian we know as Christopher Columbus set out to sail the ocean blue. And this too was a matter of piety. Ferdinand and Isabel were persuaded to fund him because Columbus promised to use the wealth he would undoubtedly gain from the voyage to recapture Jerusalem from the Muslims. He would voyage west to get to the east. He also argued that he was destined by God to spread Christianity. His very name, Christopher, meant Christ carrier in Latin. After five weeks at sea, he landed on Gaiahani, which he called San Salvador, the Spanish for Holy Saviour, and he was certain that he had reached an island off Asia and called the inhabitants, the Taino people, Indians. And Columbus's description of Indians would, of course, become pivotal in European conceptions of these New World indigenous peoples. All those that I saw, he wrote, were young people, for none did I see of more than 30 years of age. They were all very well formed with handsome bodies and good faces. They all go round naked as their mothers bore them. They're friendly and well dispositioned. He noted that they were gentle, simple, trusting people. They had no iron, and when shown swords, quote, they grasped them by the blade and cut themselves through ignorance. End quote. Ominously, he sensed that they would make good servants. He said, With fifty men, you could subject everyone on the island and make them do as you wish. And subjection certainly followed. As you see, as far as anniversaries go, we've got a lot to get through. Hawkins and the Royal African Company, the slave trade, the Dutch VOC, the Civil War, Pendle, the Taj Mahal, Chongzhen, Mary Queen of Scots, Ivan the Terrible, Galileo, Glencoe, Jamestown, Magellan, Richelieu, and of course, everything that 1492 meant. Stick with me in 2022 and we'll figure it all out. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built 
a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.